Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I am Paul Starobin, and welcome to American Beyond on the New Books Network. My guest today is Wayne E. Lee, the Bruce W. Carney Distinguished Professor of History at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He specializes in early modern military history, with a particular focus on North America and the Atlantic world, uh, but also teaches military history from a full global uh, perspective at the undergraduate and graduate level, and teaches courses on violence, as well as on the early English exploration of the Atlantic. As a kind of an additional career, he works with archaeology projects in the Balkans and has numerous publications in that field. His publications include the subject of today's discussion, The Cutting Off Way, Indigenous Warfare in Eastern North America, 1500 to 1800, which was published this year by the University of North Carolina Press. Uh, welcome to America and Beyond, uh, Wayne Lee. Thanks, Paul. It's glad, good to be here. Uh, well, I found your book fascinating, and I think the title in the first place is something that um, we might explore. Uh, what do you mean by the uh, cutting off way of uh, indigenous warfare? Yeah, sure. Um, there's two sort of points to this. One is to try to replace an older term, which I talk about in the book a little bit, um, that I find both inaccurate and sort of in denigrating to Native American uh, practice. And that is the old term is the skulking way of war. Uh, which was a term that was used by colonists fairly often with respect to what Indians were up to. You know, that, you know, they would often literally say, you know, those Indians and their skulking way. Uh, and the implication of that, the use of that term in the 17th and 18th century was that the Indians were cowardly, that they were sneaky, uh, that their warfare depended on ambush only, uh, that they would not fight in the open. And, so it's absolutely true. The historian who used that term is accurate in the sense that that was the, how the, the colonists called it. But what one of the objectives of the book was to try to flip the perspective, to, to see warfare from a native perspective and not from a colonial perspective. What were they trying to do? What were they trying to accomplish? And what were they trying to protect? And that's what the cutting off way refers to. In one sense, it's about a tactic, a technique that is designed to protect your population uh, from excessive casualties. And so you deliberately target uh, that a part of your enemy. Uh, and the part can vary in scale from a small party that is out gathering wood or, or water or hunting, or it can go up the scale to trying to cut off a whole village. And um, Native nations tended to live in clusters of villages, and it's only late in the colonial period when population reduction is really taken hold that we reinvent the Native nation as being in a single village. And therefore, one of the things I say in the book, in fact, is that that's one of the things that decline in population is one of the things that makes them strategically vulnerable because. Having a cluster of related villages that would come to each other's aid when attacked, when one of them is attacked, is what gave a nation strategic depth on defense. Um, and it's also what limited the time that an attacker had. 
And so if they're trying to cut off or attack a single village, they know they only have so much time before local reinforcements arrive to help defend that village. Right. So all of their tactics are predicated on that. Right. Was, was any one of the uh, Native American nations a innovator or in some way creator of this technique? I mean, do we know how it evolved? Oh, no. I, I, it, in many ways, it corresponds to what we know about uh, non-state warfare around the world for much of history that the, it, it, there's, it bears many similarities to what we find in the ethnographic and archaeological and historical records from other places. It, one of the things that we actually get from this particular environment, uh, that is to say, Eastern North America at the time of contact, is we get fairly voluminous written records, which is what we don't have for other places. Right. Well, what, what other places, for example, would you draw parallels to? Um, well, what we know about uh, hunter-gatherer warfare in, say, uh, Africa uh, or um, Australia, the Aboriginal peoples, um, we see some similar patterns um, in how we see early agricultural pastoral warfare in the in the sort of Mediterranean basin area. That is warfare between pastoral peoples and agricultural peoples. You tend to see pastoral peoples follow a similar pattern of attack and retreat uh that that's what the cutting off way is really a reference to is the attack and retreat and i use the term cutting off not because it bears any particular linguistic um similarity to what natives are saying because we don't necessarily have the words to describe uh how they would describe it at the time but it is a term that the english use uh in translations of indian uh, commentary. They'll say that the Indians w wanted to cut them off. Uh, in the English phrase at the time, really all it means is kill. Uh, you cut someone off, you kill them. It's equivalent to a still still modern phrase used in England that is to knock them on the head, right. which is referring to kill them. Uh, we don't use it in America, but it's a phrase in England, and it's sort of similar. If you cut them off, you're, you're talking about killing. How did you... And, I mean, your interest in this, I'm curious, how did it uh, evolve? Is this something that, was there a childhood interest? Was it something that came later? I mean, it's a very particular uh, type of interest, and, and especially, I imagine, and I know that, you know, as I said in the uh, in the introduction, that, that you have a uh, this kind of additional career working with archaeology projects. So it, it seems like there's something here that's kind of, connecting and that perhaps tells us something about your, yourself in, in terms of your your interests well it's uh i started out being writing my dissertation on warfare and violence in the colonial period north carolina uh, and that's in part because of where i was in grad school which was at duke and one of the problems that I had was I needed to figure out how to be able to do archival research relatively cheaply because of funding issues and all of that sort of life issue. And so I chose North Carolina because the, many of the archives were available locally, not all of them, many of them. And so, I was, but I was writing about uh, white people. I was writing about the colonists uh, and later the revolutionaries. I was writing about the 18th century and the Revolutionary War. And I reached the conclusion during writing that I needed to know more about how Native American warfare worked 
what does it look like? What were they trying to do? Because I was thinking at the time about how, how did that then change the way colonists thought about did the experience of contact change colonial thinking about? And um, I thought it probably had, but the evidence is, is actually harder to tease out than you might think. And so I spent some time, my first project after the, that first book was actually about Native American culture. And pieces of that appear in this book, pieces of that early uh, attempt to figure that out. But meanwhile, on the, along the way, if you're suggesting or hinting at it, I, I, in parallel, originally completely separate from my historical career, I was involved in archaeology projects in Greece and then later in Albania, uh, some shorter uh, projects in Croatia and Hungary. Um, and what that did was expose me to anthropological theories of war, uh, just if, sometimes just in conversation. So, projects that I was on were not necessarily related to warfare, but warfare comes up <laughs> even when you don't want it to. Uh, and it also helped me learn how to read archaeologists' work, because if you're not just accustomed to it, to teasing out the arguments, then you know it's, it's something you have to learn how to do. And so eventually these two threads started coming together in each one that thinking about warfare through an anthropological lens, being able to use archaeological evidence for historical purposes. And so in the end, a lot of this book, in fact, pulls from the anthropological literature and it uses archaeological evidence, uh, although grounded and rooted in historical perspective. Yeah. And that was one of my questions as I read the book or thoughts is just how do we know what we know, particularly mm -hmm. in the pre-contact uh, stage? I mean, it's clear enough. You quote from European uh, accounts and settlers, you know, uh, <clears throat> who are direct observers or at least getting secondhand uh, information. But how do we really know what we know about, you know, going back essentially uh, well before the, the contact period? Yeah, well, that is a tricky. Well, okay. To be clear, you'll note the date stamps on the book, which is fifteen hundred eighteen. I'm not making a lot of claims about the pre-contact period. I make I make some I make some claims that there is highly like that the continuity between the pre-contact period and at least the early contact period and how Native Americans think about war is is there because they've been fighting each other for centuries. And when, you, as a world military historian, one of the things that I'm working on, in fact, this book fits into a larger project about the nature of war around the world, the nature of conquest, is that your norm of war is set by the, the people you normally fight. That is, say, you, you exist in a cockpit of competition and you uh, arrive at a set of understandings about what war does, how it works, what kinds of behaviors you do, what kinds of behaviors work and or are acceptable. And then you might suddenly encounter somebody else who's got a whole different set of norms, got a different set of technologies, got a different set of expectations. And then you have a clash of expectations. And that's... Part of my argument is we should just take that as a given that there is that the Native Americans were existing prior to contact in a cockpit of competition 
and violent sometimes, violent times. Well, yes. I mean, at, some, at, at one point in, in the book, you describe the warfare as, quote unquote, endemic. I do. Uh, and uh, that was uh, another <clears throat> question I had just about the incidents of warfare uh, within uh, these Native American communities uh, between the nations or the the tribes. And I think probably a lot of people have that question because we're so used to, you know, through popular culture, we're just used to experiencing the warfare between the, the Europeans, the settlers, and, you know, the Native Americans. I mean, that seems like what we're getting. We don't get as much of this, uh, you know, warfare between uh, the Native American nations. And yet, I mean, endemic is a uh, is a powerful word. Yeah, it, it is. And it's intended to be. But it also has limits. We think we use it. We were borrowing that word from, from disease studies, right? Yes. It's, it's, it's endemic in the sense that it's present, but it's not devastating. Embedded, even. It's, it's embedded, but it doesn't necessarily overthrow the very fundamentals of your society on any sort of regular basis. It's not, not ne- epidemic. Not- not necessarily, but you know, it can. yeah, no, absolutely, it can. It just depends on the circumstance. And so, just to give a quick example, you know, with the normal narratives of warfare after contact between Europeans and Indians are have bounded war dates. You know, there's the first Anglo Poetan, there's the first Tuscarora, there's the 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 Yamasee War, and all of those are sort of bounded and in, and in, in reported to us in in our original texts and in our textbooks with start and end dates. And if you ever look at them, most of them are relatively short start. You know, a war will last two or three years. King Philip's War is, is two years. Pequot War is a year and a half. Uh, the Amacy War is uh, a couple of years. Um, but the Cherokees and the Creeks went to war with each other between 1715 and 1752. Continues endemically. Why? Uh, well, they were competing over a variety of issues, uh, including access to European trade. Uh, and during one of the negotiations for uh, over those issues, in fact, issues related to the Yamasee War, so one war sometimes spins into the next one, um, the Cherokees were divided into multiple different political factions. And one faction really wanted their, the war with the Creeks to, to uh, war with the Creeks to start. And so they actually killed a Creek delegation in Cherokee country that was on a diplomatic mission in 1715. And we, we know about that in part coincidentally because there was a South Carolinian delegation in Cherokee country at the time it happened. And so we have a narrative account of that killing. And the immediate Cherokee response, and then the the Creek response, which was the start of war, because that violated native notions of proper diplomatic procedure, and it also created blood debt requirements, because all of the people who were killed in that delegation were important persons in Creek society with connections to multiple towns in Creek Nation, and so all of those towns. And all of their relatives activated essentially the blood revenge requirement. They all needed to take revenge. So they would launch their attacks on Cherokee country, and the Cherokees would launch their attacks on the Creek country. 
but you don't see anyone sort of putting together a giant army in the European sense and marching to the frontier and crossing the front. That's not the way war worked. It was much more of an ongoing episodic, although endemic. Right. I see what you're saying. It's in the sense of, in that sense of endemic. And uh, now you uh, talked about the blood revenge, which is a subject uh, of a chapter. And I think it's important to establish uh blood revenge as a kind of root cause or, or function of, of war. Well, it, it is, it is, it is a root cause and function, but it's also something that we can be dist overly distracted. And this is one of the things that I was trying to write partially against, although without denying. So think about it this way. All society, states, native nations, whatever, when they go to war, they go to war at two different levels of motivation. There's a motivation for the collective to go to war. Why is the nation, why is the state going to war? What is it hoping to achieve? And then the other level is the individual who goes to war on the state's behalf. Why are they going? Now, in the modern state, we can talk about conscription and say the individual didn't have any choice, although that would be an interesting debate that we that's a separate issue. But at almost any other form of society, democracy or a nation that has, relies on relatively egalitarian and consensual-based forms of decision-making government, like a native nation, they, you can't just go around and say, all right, hey, you six guys, come with me. We're going on a raid. You've got to persuade them. And the motivations for individuals in a native nation very often includes the blood revenge requirement, that there is a reason why they are because they killed some of us and we need to kill some of them back and they, some of the people they killed were my relatives and so I feel obligated to go and take revenge and so the collective nation may have goals beyond it. they may right. just have revenge but goals. it might start with the <clears throat> and is the initial killing by definition an intentional one a murder or, or it could have happened in any circumstances I mean how, how did the let's say the, the original killing tend to happen in the first place? Was it just a deliberate act of, of, of what we think of as, as murder? Well, or it can be a, a death that is attributed to the end because the, there are spiritual powers at work in the world, uh, very often manifested in disease. If we, if we choose, if we believe that that killing was generated by another side without necessarily knowing who exactly did it, they can still therefore become the subject of the blood revenge requirement. Wow. Uh, so even and, though it, it may have, I mean, do you think that happened frequently where there was kind of just misattributed or, or just these kind of vague circumstances? Well, we, I don't think we have any way, our sources don't give us any way to to see uh, how often this would have happened, but we do see it happen. There are occasions where it's absolutely taking place. And we also know that, um, these blood revenge requirements can cycle on and on and on for more than a, a generation without anybody even remembering necessarily what the first killing was. Yes, well, the, right. The, the raids between the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Catawba, for example, uh, go on for decades, all based on some original uh, blood revenge requirement. And they're all relatively small raids because they're 600 miles apart. Um, and so that uh, over length, 
Mm-hmm. And in fact, there the, the the competition, the the, the the competition, the wars between the Catawba and the Haudenosaunee are one of the, in one sense, one of the uh, conflicts that originally inspired me to look even deeper into this because it was a massive logistical undertaking to be going 600 miles over lane as opposed to being able to paddle down river or take a boat. Right. So that was and, one of the original, uh, in- interesting. Let me. So blood revenge may be a kind of initial uh, cause or, or path to war, but as you note in the book, uh, it can expand be quite beyond that, right, into other uh, reasons for warfare. Well, no, I, it's not that I, I see it expanding into other reasons. It's, they coexist. Okay. That you can, the, the nation can have a, a hope for gaining control over another nation and demanding tribute from them, or as I discussed in the final chapter of the book, and one I think one of the most original contributions to the book, the uh, the nation can hope for more expansive hunting territory by forcing another nation to move to displace mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. That can be a national, a national level objective. Yes, but to accomplish that, you've got to have individuals willing to go along. Y- to right, go along. you've got to sort of start with that that basis, and and you. Um which you come back to in in the concluding chapter as well as in the, in the chapter on blood revenge. And you write that the cultural mandate for revenge proved extremely difficult to overcome. And I found myself wondering, you know, as I read that, is this a universal principle? Uh, I somewhat tend to resist the modern parallels, but nevertheless, uh, is it fair to go to, for example, uh, Israel Gaza right now. I mean, the Prime Minister of Israel after these horrific uh, October seventh uh, attacks, massacres, really by Hamas, vowed to exact a mighty revenge, and so that seemed to strike a, a resonant chord. Yes, I would never want to say that revenge only functions functions as an individual motive. It is absolutely present at the national level, and in some ways, the modern creation of the nation state and in its especially in some ways in it's more democratic uh, enables the desire for revenge to overcome political calculation well, why especially the democratic that's intriguing well because if you think about for example uh, the classic era sort of state on state warfare which is the 17th 18th 19th century where and if you if you remember it from your history textbooks the list of wars in Europe in the 18th century in particular you have the war of austrian succession the war of spanish succession the war of english succession and a lot of these wars we sometimes call them the cabinet wars they were wars fought by kings ruling countries over the over the control of slices of territory or the, or over the control of who would be the king next in some other country or in their own country and so they were highly confined in some ways in terms of motive. There was no sense of revenge. There was no sense of popular cry for the destruction of a, of a hated enemy. Although some of that starts to build. In fact, there's an argument that the repeated wars between France and England within this period creates a kind of Englishness, creates a kind of notion of the English nation that is 
sort of aligned against its traditional enemies. That's the nation, that notion of a, of a people, of yes. an ethnicity. Right. That then acquires over time, it can acquire over time, that we must take revenge on those who have affronted us. And in the modern uh, era, the creation of the nation state, one of the things that it does, the creation of the modern nation state in the 19th century, is it opens up that can of worms that we, the Germans, must be strong and we must either defeat and or take revenge on the French. And then later, of course, when the French are defeated in 1871, it's the French nation that's demanding revenge. That yes. they, they want a national level. Yes. And I think some of that persists in the modern world. Yes. Yeah, I mean the Balkans too. You mentioned that you would, you know, the specialty in the Balkans, which we think of almost as a catchword or, or metaphor for these kinds of wars, uh, which could be pretty vicious as well. I mean, we saw in the collapse of the former uh, Yugoslavia, the you know atrocities uh, in the in the Balkans and Serbians and Bosnia and so forth. So none of that has has certainly been e extinguished from the. From the human condition. No, that's right. And I think it's also important to recognize the interactions between, as I was suggesting, the Native nations, there's an interaction between the state level motivations and the strength of the state and individual motivations. So the individuals in the Balkans who are experiencing atrocities or individuals in Gaza who are experiencing atrocities will carry that desire for revenge with them as individuals. The question will be what will the state do in response? Will it seek to control those individual desires for revenge in order to limit the violence the state gets dragged into? Or will the state feel pushed by those individual desires for revenge to engage in further violence yes. which wage their population? Yeah. And that's and a theme. Go either way. Yeah. And it's a theme in the book because you write uh there's sort of interesting parallels or, or tensions between the uh the indigenous way of war and let's say the European way of war, even if uh, they're... So on these parallels, you write that there was a limited notion of revenge that drifted, differed dramatically from the European uh, ideology of revenge in war, which you characterize a, as a no-holds-barred retaliation. So even if we accept this principle of revenge, it doesn't necessarily work out in the same way yeah that's right and that's one of the things that i don't i don't want people to hear me saying that native americans were were sort of afflicted or infected with the notion of revenge that europeans didn't have it's, in some ways it's quite the reverse mm -hmm. in that native notions of revenge were relatively easily satisfied an individual who felt that need for revenge could kill or uh, take prisoner one other person and, and feel that they had accomplished what needed to be done. Uh, and what we see in on when European colonists are attacked is that they have a more expansive notion of the requirements for revenge, the, the desire to go out and destroy an entire nation of Indians rather than uh, be satisfied by this tit-for-tat requirement. And the... the tit for tat might go on for a long time in an endemic way, but it's very small scale. Whereas the European nations have the state capacity 
to mobilize its whole population to go take revenge in, in a very wholesale manner in a hope or in or assume that they can do it quickly and yeah and and there is this notion that um th we acquire i i, I acquired in, in graduate studies of, of international relations of deterrence uh which uh perhaps wrongly i have tended to think of in sort of universal fashions but it was certainly in, in the modern way of thinking about warfare uh and particularly in the nuclear age notions of deterrence uh, have enormous weight. I mean, scholars, d diplomats like Henry Kissinger would talk endlessly about what was needed to establish or reestablish deterrence. And it doesn't appear that this was the way that the uh, Native Americans thought so much in this notion of more limited warfare, tit for tat. It wasn't that they felt like they needed to do whatever needed to be done so that would never be another attack. Well, yes and no. Okay. Uh, one of the, there's a term that I use in the book uh, that I think should become, honestly think should become more current in, in thinking about this period and these, and these people, which is uh, reputation management. That taking revenge is not purely emotion. Emotion is very much involved. There's been a recent book that talks about this Matt Kruger's work on the Susquehanna talks about the, the, role, the role of emotion uh, in their violence and other things. But it's also important to recognize that failure to take revenge diminishes your reputation in the eyes of your enemies and suggests weakness and vulnerability. And so that if you're if you're not taking revenge, you're not creating you're not creating a reputation that functions in a deterrence mode. And again, none of these are perfect deterrents. Uh, none of these are, are perfect, and it, the, the uh, particularities of the situation always matter. The personalities of individuals involved always matter. One of the ways we can see the particularities and the, and, and the idiosyncrasies of personality is in the faction within an age. When we have good enough records, when there were enough traders and enough European diplomats sort of constantly in Indian country, and the Cherokees are a good example of this, we can start to see how the divisions within the Cherokee Nation, which and they were already divided into three, re three or four regions, depending on how you divide them up. Um, some of them wanted to work with the French. Some of them wanted to work with England. And they could hold very hard to that desire. To, I want to work with the English. I don't want to work with the French. And, and you know, there's, in some ways, it's, it's about their own internal dynamics. They're using, one guy's using English to say, I want to become more powerful amongst the Cherokee with English help, whereas another guy says, I want to become more powerful Cherokees with French help. And that there's this, so that you've got how much trade value can the French provide, how much trade value can the English provide, what's the dynamic between these two different Cherokee leaders, why do they dislike each other, why are they fighting for more power over their own people? Right. Yes, it's a mistake to think that there's some kind of uniformity among the Indian or, or Native American nations and the way they approached warfare. Although you do, again, point to some interesting contrast. I was sort of fascinated by your treatment of prisoners and uh, how differently, uh, you know, in the European model and way prisoner exchanges were basically seen as routine and, and des desirous. But, but as you write, uh, for entirely different reasons, they were thought about um, in another way uh, 
typically by the Native American makers of war, right? Yes, prison, the taking of prisoners and the treatment of prisoners, function of prisoners is clearly one of the most uh, conflict-causing of cultural differences um, between Europeans and Native Americans. And it's a deeply embedded cultural expectation. And remember, when I say deeply embedded, this goes back to what we were talking about before, that Native Americans have been fighting each other for hundreds of years. And in that process, they had evolved an attitude towards prison. Which is what? Which is what? Naturally applied to Europeans. Which is what is their attitude? Yeah. The primary function is to is several several layers. So first layer is taking a prisoner is the is the greatest evidence for my success as a warrior. If I take a prisoner, then I have been massively successful. So I get individual social status for taking a prisoner. And then I can take that prisoner. Any prisoner? Would it matter whether it was a a woman, a child, an elderly person, or an actual warrior? Any prisoner. Okay. And I can then take that prisoner back to my home village. And one of several things can happen. I can, uh, and often it's determined by the women. Now, this varies somewhat from nation to nation amongst within North America. So it's not a completely uniform pattern. But for the most part, the, the women of the home village, hometown, will decide the fate of the prison. One fate is to be, especially for adult men, is to be tortured to death by the community to death, which is a way of, of expunging grief over your own loss as part of the revenge cycle. And, you know, the looked at from a very high altitude, there is an advantage to that because the entire community is expunging the desire for revenge by doing this, that this act of tremendous violence against a single person's body can prevent further violence because this need for revenge is diminished by having accomplished it. And at the same time, presumably this raiding party has come back with more than one prisoner. You know, one prisoner will be tortured to death, maybe a couple, but the others will be adopted into society as replacement kin for your own losses. Now, again, this will vary from place to place where you are as to how exactly this works, but it's also an embedded expectation. People who are taken prisoner more or less know this is what's likely to happen. And because, to go back to our Catawba Hodnashanians, we're 600 miles apart. The odds of me sort of quote escaping and then getting all the way back home are very low. And so it's going to behoove me to just try to blend in with what's happening. I'm going to, this is how I'm going to eat. This is how I'm going to have shelter and clothing is by becoming the niece or the nephew of these people who've taken me to prison. Uh, and so it's an embedded assumption that this is a functional way of adopting kin in your society, and they will be real kin in your society. Now, obviously, this works better with children. Uh, they're going to adapt into that system more easily uh, because they're more flexible. Uh, and it's very often done uh, with women, but it's also done with adult men. Some of our most famous sort of frontier characters in American lore are adult white men 
were adopted into native societies and lived amongst and with those native societies uh, sometimes for years. Like what, uh, which 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 people? Daniel Boone was an adopted Shawnee, mm-hmm. and he retained his Indian and his Indian kin even as he went back into white society, and then living on the frontier, he would move back and forth across the frontier and and still have that identity. Uh, but we have lots of other uh, adult men who were taken captive. And some of them would reject their Indian identity when they got back to white society. Uh, some of them would write about it, uh, but some of them would retain it as a tool of advantage. William Johnson, the Indian superintendent for the British Empire in the North, famously was an adopted monk. Uh, and it was a very important diplomatic tool for him to retain that, that Indian name. And his adoption was somewhat less war-related and more sort of, I'm going to say, customary as opposed to prisoner-based. Right. It, the idea of adoption was real. Mm-hmm. And, and in very many of the nations, the kinship went through the mother. And so if he, if an adopted male then had a, a married someone that had children, and the children took their clan membership through the mother the mother they were matrilineal and so there was no sense of half blood this really derogatory term that white people right the native people you're an indian right no matter i mean when you say torture as well does that encompass uh rape as a as a practice of women or young young women girls no in fact quite famously uh Native nations east of the Mississippi. I don't. I haven't looked closely at the records west of the Mississippi, but certainly east of Mississippi, the evidence for rape by Native nations is almost zero. In fact, I would say it's zero. Uh, any attempt to find it is pretty highly interpreted. Wow, and we. I mean, we associate that in our popular mind. I think rape is almost universally associated as very likely to occur in an atmosphere of of war and in the chaotic conditions of war almost as as a legitimate uh prize of of war in the eyes of the uh the soldiers who've been you know were at threat of, of uh, risk of losing their lives and anyway that's right uh european soldiers almost assume it as a perquisite of war at that time uh and obviously at other times as well uh some of quite notorious but in native societies, it's stats of any kind while on campaign was typically uh, prohibited as as undermining this the the power of the spirit world to sustain you while you're on campaign. We, we want to walk almost all the way back to basic spiritual beliefs in which Native Americans believe that the spirit world was constantly interacting with and affecting the material. Um, in a way much more sort of uh, persistent and, and, and man than even Christians would have had who believed in a providential God. You know, God would intervene. That there was spirits all around, constantly interacting, with them, and that certain people had more access to the spirit world than others, but you had to be constantly wary of what was happening in the spirit world because it would affect you in the media, in the material world. And one of the things was, was sexual purity for and going on campaign and that's one of the reasons you don't see evidence for rape 
Right. I mean, and you write with respect to the uh, spiritual world that after uh, a war, there was typically what you call a ritual of purification. They may include fasting or so forth, which, um, yeah, talk more about that. I mean, that that's not that's something we would necessarily uh, uh, think of. Right. We, we see it described, again, our descriptions are from European witnesses, and they almost all the nations that you can get any sort of description of what a post-campaign uh, uh, homecoming looks like, all of them seem to include multiple days of isolation uh, to undergo a, a purification. And we don't know, quote-unquote, why, we can make assumptions that the notion is that killing is creating harm for the killer and that for the killer. Uh, but that's an assumption. We don't really know, but it's, it fits the ethnographic record we have from others, uh, societies and our, even our own experiences with what we now talk about as PTSD and the need for returning soldiers to not purify themselves, but to reckon with their experiences in one way or another, whether that's by writing or talking with each other or seeing a counselor or whatever, that there is some need to reestablish moral and spiritual balance. Hey, I mean, was there a, were there concepts of personal guilt? Again, we don't, our records aren't going to let us that deep. I've never seen anything that would get us that deep inside the mentality of Native American. I mean, they, we in that period, and it's, so it's hard for us to say, but it surely looks, I mean, it surely seems to be, uh, there's a, again, deeply embedded expectation that when you come home, this is what you do. You spend two days in the in a sweat lodge, or it varies, again, depending on which kind of, which nation you're in, the process varies, the practice varies. Yeah. There is a sense of a need for purification. Mm -hmm. And just as you write also that uh, there was typically uh, quite a bit of deliberation before a war campaign. And I can imagine, you know, as you, as you say, there are a number of, of reasons for that. And you have to, you know, make sure you've raised enough people and so forth. But the deliberation aspect is interesting. I mean, does that reflect, at least in part, this sense that you're about to do a very, very serious thing that that could involve a lot of consequences so far as the spiritual world is concerned um no possibly it's more it seems more the, the front end of the campaign is much more to me more like a mobilization recruitment effort than a, than a purification issue it's more like getting people whipped up this is what this is what we're seeking this is what's happened been done to us that we need to deal with uh, it's more of a political calculation what are the risks we should never assume they don't calculate the risks uh, before doing something. Um, you know, what's the risk reward calculus? Um, and we see that pretty clearly, especially when European diplomats come into a native nation and want their help as allies. And the natives are like, all right, well, you're going to have to, you know, pay us this much. You're going to have to supply us from this point forward. Um, we, we want you to build a fort here in our villages because that would be useful to us. And you can very much see the political calculus that's taking place at the outset of campaign. Yeah. Well, another aspect of the deliberation, at least that had me thinking, was that um, it was in some ways not necessarily so hierarchical in the way that these decisions were approached. I mean, I hesitate to use the term small d 
democracy, but it kind of felt that way. I mean, how much of a say did just the kind of, you know, let's say re regular conscript have over what was about to be happening? Or was there a lot of de deference to the, you know, the leader, the war leader of the, uh, you know, the party that was contemplating the action? Yeah, it's, it's a highly consensus-based decision-making system. You're very rarely going to get a single uh, personality saying, all right, go. It's much more going to be a council. Uh, in, in many of these sites, there's also going to be the women's council is going to be involved in the decision-making. Uh, very often, it's the women decide for peace or war, not just the, not the men or even not just the men. Uh, there are exceptions. Uh, and in fact, some of the exceptions are really important in America. Because one of the biggest exceptions is, is poetry uh, in the in the poets and chiefdom where Jamestown first sets up, uh, where he appears to have achieved in the years prior to the immediate years prior to the founding of Jamestown in 1607, to have achieved a level of, of authority over a fairly wide landscape, the Potomac Bay, Potomac Basin area, uh, that was almost kingly. We call him, uh, anthropologists have a specific term for his level of authority. They call him a paramount chief. Paramount chief. That, that mm -hmm. he was a chief of chiefs. Chief of uh, chiefs, that's good. And that he, we see him ordering uh, villages to do certain things, subordinate villages to do certain mm -hmm. things. We see him uh, um, commanding armies in ways that uh, seem much more hierarchical. And oh, sort of, it's a sort of an yeah, uh, autocratic kind of style. Um, but as, as, our, as we move into the inland and over time into the colonial period, almost all of the other societies that we encounter, we as historians encounter, are much more consensus-based and at least semi-egalitarian. Right. And that's interesting. And the other aspect of it that, you know, again, sort of a, a parallel, we almost... Uh, assume that a lot of the European wars are fought for larger aims, however they began, whether it's territorial uh, in nature, it's, you know, empires creating buffer states and, and populations, uh, exacting tribute, all these kinds of things. And I sense from the book that um, although you were acknowledging that there were, could certainly could be these, these kind of wider aims, uh, you are also acknowledging that there's quite a bit of debate about that among uh, the specialists in this area, right? About the the sort of larger or or more sort of political aspects of warfare. Well, most of our sources are about wars between Indians and colonists, whether French, Spanish, English. Um, and those are mostly wars of self-defense. Uh, and the political aim of self-defense is clear, right? Um, part of the objective of the book was to say, okay, but what about all the wars that we know were happening between the Indians before contact and after contact? What were those about? And almost far too, I'm not gonna say almost always, but far too often, the assumption has been, oh, they weren't about anything material. They were about small-scale revenge issues. They, were, you know, there, there's no giant political cause. Actually, part of what I was trying to say was, no, that's not the case. That very 
there were political objectives, what we think of as political objectives. You know, reputation management is, is a political objective. Uh, a demanding tribute from a newly subordinated village is a political objective. Yeah, and tribute, let's just say, could, could consist of what? What was tribute? Well, that that very often was either, well, I should say there's two kinds, basically. There's uh, low bulk, high value exotic mm -hmm. goods that you took more or less as a symbol of their submission. Mm -hmm. And then there is um, high bulk subsistence where, and in fact, we talked about Poetin just a second ago, but this is one of the things that makes Poetin stand out, is that we see uh, canoe loads, and these are big, canoe loads of corn and other foods being delivered to mm -hmm. Poetin for storage and often for redistribution, because he'll cement his own hierarchical power by redistributing goods. Um, and so... That's possible in Chesapeake because you can move bulk goods by water. Virtually all the villages are essentially on the water. Um, when you talk about inland overland relations, you know, we tend to see tribute as more low bulk, high value exotic goods. Um, and the other good that you want, not necessarily in tribute, is more hunting territory. There's almost no need at these population levels for more agricultural territory, which is what a European would normally think of as territorial conquest, if we're going to conquer farmland. For the Native Americans, the, the bigger acreage requirements is gathering areas where you put you know, reliable places where you can go get aquatic proteins, shellfish, oysters, uh, and, and or fish runs, and hunting, uh, especially for deer. And so one of the things that, that I was able to show, and again, I think fairly uniquely in this book, is the extent to which some native wars are being fought to displace their enemies, to increase the size of the buffer zone between them or to move the buffers between them so that you have more safe and reliable hunting spaces on your end of that buffer and taking it away from, from there. And again, the Creeks and the Cherokees, because they're so well documented over such a long period of time, we can see this happening where the Creeks seem to be forcing the Cherokees to retreat to the north. And that later in the 1770s, we actually see the Creeks make a claim in English courts about their conquest of that territory by war. They won it with the sword, to use the English expression. Uh, and that therefore it's theirs. And the Cherokees can't sell it to the colonial governments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it's really just quite intricate, and I think that's part of the the fascination of this uh, book. And uh, we're going to wrap it up. I mean, I'm going to encourage everyone to read this book. I think it will overturn a lot of our sort of rote expectations about uh, Native Americans and their way of of warfare and should cause people to, to reflect more on that. Um, I want to thank you, Wayne Lee, Lee for, yeah, for, for well. being here. And this is uh, Paul Sarabin uh, uh, for America and Beyond on the New Books Network.